Asking Advocates, a new podcast brought to you by UC Berkeley's ACLU's Gender Equity Committee. On Asking Advocates, we hope to create an open atmosphere for students to talk about politics, campus life, advocacy work, and so much more. So every other week, we will bring you new topics, new hosts, special guests, and so much more so that we can learn together. See you guys there. Hello, listeners of GAL ACLU's Gender Equity Podcast. Today, the Advocacy Committee of the Society of Women Engineers at Berkeley will be taking over the podcast to talk to you about gender equity in STEM spaces. And we're really excited for you to be here. Let's go over a quick round of introductions. Uh, I can start. My name is Shara Kazuchi, and I'm currently serving as the Advocacy Director at SWE Berkeley. Uh, I'm a sophomore studying bioengineering and public policy. I'm incredibly passionate about healthcare accessibility, uh, but I'd say that my aspiration would be to work in both the science and policy fields. I've yet to figure out how to make that intersection. Uh, but as you know, we're here to talk about it. So hopefully that can be a reality very soon. Hi, everyone. I'm Ruhi Langalapali, and I'm a second year bioengineering major. Um, I'm also on the advocacy committee in SWE. And I'm interested in going into the medical device industry, which is design development, as well as um, some of the regulatory aspects of it that kind of intersect with advocacy, which is super cool. Hi, everyone. I am Sana. I am a freshman, and I'm also on the advocacy committee of SWE. Um, My major is cognitive science, and I'm hoping to minor in public policy. And I'm really interested in the policy surrounding biotechnology. So as you can see, we are all public policy minors. Um, And that's very interesting because Berkeley offers us that unique academic pathway to pursue both our passion in STEM and also public policy. Um, Moving into what SWE advocacy really does, uh, we would like to touch upon a few of our activities, what we do on a daily basis. Uh, It might be really weird for some people to hear Society of Women Engineers, you know, with the whole STEM vibe of it all. And then here, yeah, we're from the advocacy committee. We do policy work. Uh, but getting into it, the Advocacy Committee of the Society of Women Engineers attempts to bridge the gap between science and policy by advocating for better approaches to support the scientific community and better infrastructure for equitable distribution of technology, which is something that's very important. People really underestimate how important it is that even you know while we're having innovation and continued growth in the science community, we need to make sure that that technology actually reaches the people and benefits them. Yeah, and we're a relatively new committee, but here at Berkeley, we've already been working really hard to make an impact. Um, we've been taking on initiatives involving voter engagement, STEM policy awareness, and helping women become advocates for themselves in very male-dominated disciplines. This semester itself, we've been able to host a speaker series focusing on women in policy, and our director, Sharika, was actually able to attend Congressional Outreach Day, which we'll discuss later in this very podcast. And in most academic spaces, we don't conventionally associate science and engineering with policymaking and politics because by definition, they belong in different realms of expertise. I think so many of us either become a STEM major or a humanities major, so they don't have to deal with the other. But it's actually a big disservice to completely ignore the other aspect because that intersection is truly where we can show how significantly significantly impactful both of them can be to each other. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has also revealed that true intersection between science and policy and showing how vulnerable scientific fact is to political propaganda. 
For example, without the right policies in place, science cannot contribute to social welfare efficiently. And we can't make the scientific community itself a more equitable space without the proper infrastructure in place. And the way things stand right now, science and technology spaces are far from equitable, primarily because the resources that are required to pursue a career in these industries heavily depend on socioeconomic factors. And on top of that, the industries are all very heavily plagued by bias. Both of these factors combine to create a STEM ecosystem that is far from equitable for minorities. So just thinking about the academic environment at Berkeley, we are all three women of color studying STEM fields. And I just kind of wanted to ask you guys, like in your engineering classes, your cog cog side technical classes, how many women and even people of color, women of color, do you see in your classes? Um, it's, it's always it's always a good mix. That, I'm glad you bring that up because we're bioengineering majors and arguably bioengineering is one of the most equal fields in the College of Engineering in the sense right. that bioengineering has a significant number of women in the in, in the major. Uh, but you see that number kind of decline as, you know, we go from freshman to senior year. And you see that number decline further when you talk about women going from senior year to industry. So I think that's where the gaping holes in the pipeline are because we're able to get, you know, even the women who make it to the STEM major are not able to, you know, perhaps complete it. Right. And I know 21% of all bachelors of engineering degrees are awarded to women Mm -hmm. and only 6.7% of those degrees are awarded to women of color. So at Berkeley, we may have a different story. We may see a different story than what is happening across the country. And Actually, in addition, when we're talking about representation within our faculty, only 17% of tenured or tenure track faculty of engineering are women. And so, I mean, it's difficult to feel like you can stay through a major when you don't have that representation in a role model itself. Agreed. I mean, I've definitely seen that our classrooms are, some classrooms are very representative of these statistics. I mean, if we're talking about EECs and we're talking about civil league, there are a lot of young women in these classrooms and especially women of color who don't you know, see people like them in their classroom, who don't see people like them teaching this class. And that's, you know, that leaves them very prone to alienation in these already very, very challenging classes. So if consistently someone is telling you that you don't belong in a space, you start believing them at some point. And being one of the young girls who was you know, in a STEM class, so I'm, I'm an international student for in, from India for some background. And uh, I was actually on track to study engineering there. And for, you know, doing that, you have to like give this test and you really prepare for that test. Like you, you take classes and stuff. And I was so excited to be in those classes. Like I got enrolled and I was like with my backpack, with my pink pencil box, just turning up to do some math. But unfortunately, I was one of 11 women in a class of 80 people. And although at first that was not jarring to me because I'd always been interested in science and that was usually how the makeup of my classrooms looked, it started becoming jarring when I looked at the behavior professors had towards me doing well versus one of my male counterparts or the behavior professors had towards me in general. Like if I asked a question, it was, oh, sweetie, you're doing this wrong. And it was just not the same level as how they were teaching the boys. And I feel like that's an internal bias that just it extends through like countries to cultures and it's just very unfortunate that so many young women have to go through that. Arka, I actually completely agree because 
I think that this issue starts out much earlier than we think it does. We often talk about how women are weeded out of STEM fields at university, but I think this culture surrounding women in STEM from even elementary school or middle school, where women are constantly made to feel like them succeeding or excelling in STEM fields is a rarity and something mm-hmm. and something to be um, acknowledged and pointed out and just abnormal. Mm-hmm. I think that really contributes to this pervasive idea that women are not meant for STEM fields. And it starts out very, very early and it leaches into or bleeds into what we see in the industry today. Right. Um, so I think that a lot of, even today, only 14% of the general engineering workforce is composed of with women. And in the computer science workforce, uh, there are only 25% women as well. I personally, in an internship last semester, was the only female intern working in a biotechnology company. I was the only woman of color in the entire in the entire company. And I think I was one of maybe four women total uh, in the entire building, which was made up of STEM-related companies. So it's a very personal experience that many students at Berkeley have to go through. Absolutely. I had a similar experience in my company last semester, and there were only two women um, in the entire engineering department. And luckily, I mean, two out of the three interns including myself, were women of color, which was pretty exciting and showed that the company was trying to make strides in the right direction. But um, it's definitely somewhere where progress needs to happen and change needs to happen. Yeah. And the pipeline itself is clearly just not set up to allow for women to continue in these industry fields because only 30% of women with a BS in engineering are still currently working in that same industry. Women, mothers, or even employees who have other gender-related concerns only earn 90 cents for every dollar a man earns, which also disincentivizes them from continuing to work in that field. And I mean, not to mention, if we're talking on average, if we're talking statistics, about 14% of women are in the general engineering workforce. When you see the computer science workforce, that number increases, but not to 50% at which it should be. Instead, the computer science workforce is only 25% women. And when people see the statistics, they're like, oh, it's better than last year or it's better than 10 years ago. But that's not the goal. 50% of the population should not be restricted to a small population of the overall workforce. We deserve to reach that 50%. And that is something that, you know, small groups like ours, we advocacy and the Cal ACLU's Gender Equity Committee, that's what we are trying to achieve through our small initiatives. Um, And I'm glad you bring up your personal experiences, Sana and Ruhi, because uh, another statistic that has you know been revealed through SWE's data collection was that 30% of women who leave the engineering field have cited organizational climate as the reason for the same. So like you guys said, you know, not having enough women on a team, not having the right, you know, demeanor towards your female employees and female like coworkers is is a lot of the time what leads to like bad climate. Um moving on to w- what, you know, we can do on on, on a policy level, on a, on a federal level, what, what changes can we make such that we can make the organizational climate better for women? How, how can we give them the support system, the backbone they need to, you know, consistently make their careers in these fields and not feel like they're being left out? Uh, well, one of the opportunities we had through the National SWE was to attend the annual Society of Women Engineers Congressional Outreach Event. 
which is an opportunity for members of the broader Sweet community uh, to reach out to lawmakers in Washington, D.C. and lobby for policies, bills, and plans that can support women in STEM, promote equity and intersectionality in the broader scientific community. And it can also be a platform for engineers to converse with their representatives about making technology more accessible for their constituents. Um, now, I was a first-time advocate at this event, and I was honestly terrified of what the possibilities could be, how you know I was to talk about these very technical bills just as a you know women in engineering, but it came more naturally than you think. So I just want to start off our conversation. We're talking about the STEM Opportunities Act, which is also known as HR 204, which is one of the bills that we were advocating for that day. Uh, and the bill basically aims to improve data collection to implement evidence-based policies. Uh, to promote equity and diversity in the scientific community. So I guess, just to clarify that, what kind of data will the bill collect specifically? Do you know? Um, Yeah, I think we discussed this at length because data collection can often be subject to heavy bias. But I believe that data collection in this uh, bill or in this context was such that uh, Congress can have more than just honestly quite old information that they use to create bills and policies to make STEM a more equitable field. They wanted to get actual demographic information from the industry as it stands today to make sure that their policies are serving the people that they need to be serving. And it will be basically a data collection on the basis of how many people enter the STEM field with a degree in engineering or a degree in STEM and how many people are still in that you know field 20 years later. What were the reasons that they could have left? Like, what were the um, what were the factors that could have led to it? So it's a very like rationale based data collection, in my opinion. So is this applying to industry or education as well? Because I know there's a huge drop off of girls, young girls interested in STEM through the K through 12 education system. I, I think that there were several bills that we tackled throughout the Congressional Outreach Day. And this was one of the ones that was more focused on industry. But we had a few that still haven't been introduced in the House. One would be the 21st Century STEM for Girls and Underrepresented Minorities Act, uh, which hasn't been introduced yet. But the the core of the bill was that it wants to grant you know more money to local educational agencies that receive Title I funding to encourage girls to pursue STEM fields through tutoring, mentoring, and after-school activities. Um, and I think that would be one of the bills that's more over tackling like the lower end of the STEM, you know, academic career. Like we're talking about elementary school, middle school, and, you know, that kind of stage in life. Yeah. I think one thing that we've talked about a lot throughout this podcast is how a lot of environmental factors have made it harder for women to assimilate into the STEM workforce. So I was wondering, did you hear about any policies that could help bridge that gap? I mean, we have our famous the Equality Act, which was once again on the agenda of SWE in D.C. We were basically advocating for the fact that the Equality Act clarifies that, you know, existing federal statutes prohibiting sex discrimination in employment, healthcare, housing, education, credit under Title VII also prohibit sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. And we're hoping to make this a reality. Uh, More specifically, if we're talking about like the position of women in STEM, in their workforce. We did discuss one very interesting bill called the Paycheck Fairness Act, uh, also known as HR 7-S-205, which basically requires the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to collect employer data to enforce laws prohibiting pay discrimination, which is something that is, as we mentioned earlier with the 90 cent to a dollar situation, something that is actually a huge concern for women in STEM. 
Uh, one thing that we talked about a lot throughout the course of this podcast as well is that how a lot of societal expectations, for example, the expectation to become a mother and to bring up a family can interfere with people staying in the STEM industry. So what can the government do to help mitigate the impacts of the societal um, standard? And what can we individually like do to help advocate for governmental action? So I think that a lot of people take the reality of women's condition in society at face value. And they say that, yeah, a lot of the discrimination that comes with being a woman is just because of how things are and this is how they will be. But I think that one of the bills that we discussed, it, it was called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, uh, also known as HR 1065. Uh, and it basically targeted the fact that the reality is a lot of women are discriminated against based on maternity leave, based on you know pregnancy compensation. And basically the bill worked towards prohibiting uh, employers from discriminating against employees impacted by pregnancy or childbirth, including failing to make reasonable accommodations, taking adverse actions or denying opportunities, or even forcing an employee to take unpaid leave. And this is where I have to refer to my hero RBG in that a lot of the approaches justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg took towards fighting gender discrimination was by talking about it as a whole for society. And this is one of the bills that talks about it as a whole. For example, like there are men who are taking paternity leave for childbirth as well. Like this applies to the broader set of parents and not just women, but obviously it helps the condition of women the most. So I think that's what makes laws like this interesting in that it really puts into perspective how many people are affected by gender discrimination and how the liberation of women is actually associated with the liberation of society as a whole. Just like a real quick stop on the way, I want to talk about the Sexual Harassment in Science Act as well, which is not yet introduced in the House, but is something that they're going to be introducing soon. And it basically helps as we were discussing earlier, helps make the organizational environment better for women such that they don't feel unsafe in spaces that they're underrepresented in, but they're actually, you know, in those spaces, making a change and making space for the women coming uh, after them without, you know, feeling uncomfortable about it. I think this bill especially has the potential to be really powerful because so many women in their jobs, they don't feel secure uh, after reporting sexual harassment because they feel like they can face retaliation or lose their job. So being able to do research on some of the best methods to make people feel comfortable about reporting is definitely very critical. Uh -huh. Yeah, I completely agree. I think tying back into what um, Sharka was saying earlier about how we ourselves can make sure that our voices are more heard on college campuses itself, because that manifests and that uh, is reflected in society as a whole. Uh, we did want to spend a little bit of time in this podcast discussing what SWE advocacy in particular at Berkeley uh, is planning on working on in the future. I, for one, I'm very, very excited about continuing our Sweet Advocacy Speaker Series and growing to collaborate some more with other groups on campus to create initiatives that further both STEM policies in general and women in STEM specifically. Yeah, in addition, um, next year, we're super excited. We're gonna be um, working very closely with the Equity and Inclusion Committee of SWE as well and actually merging a lot of our initiatives so I think there is a huge section of intersection intersectionality between advocating for women and what does it mean to be advocating with women, because that is a lot broader of an audience that you might think, as well as engaging with their community when things are hopefully back in person. 
um, and bringing back voter engagement as we're coming up on our next um, two-year term. Yeah, and if these things seem interesting to you as well, and you are passionate about these causes as well, I would urge you, we would all urge you to get involved with these initiatives by either joining your local sphere advocacy groups, um, engaging high school outreach programs. I know some that off the top of my head are like Plug Mini U, HSEP, Sweet Science, or Sweet Plus Plus, or just creating a support system around you that enables you to pursue your passions in STEM and in advocacy. I think it's a lot easier to do these things with a group, but there are things that you can do on your own, such as reaching out to networking groups of women engineers in the industry for advice, even if that's not sweet. Additionally, advocating for better company policies within your organizations. I think within the past year, there's been a, a movement to listen to more young people. And now is a chance for you to voice your opinions about that as well as advocating for better policies by engaging with your local lawmakers. Every small initiative can make a difference. Thank you so much, Ruhi and Sana, for discussing the ways that people can get involved in making the small difference that they can in their community. But that is our time, and we want to thank you for joining us today. You can find UC Berkeley Society of Women Engineers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn with the handle UCBSWE, which is UCBSWP. For any specific questions for the advocacy committee itself, or to get involved with our work, please reach out to advocacy.ucbsui at gmail.com, and we will look forward to your emails. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Bye.